Well, again, if you're uh, new or visiting with us, uh, it's a joy to be here with you. Um, we are continuing to make our way through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're actually coming uh, to the end. We have this week and the next week. Uh, and this week, we've come to what is, uh, without question, the most disturbing and uh, frightening passage in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and perhaps the most disturbing and frightening passage in the whole Bible. So uh, buckle up. Here we go. Are you ready? Uh, Matthew 7, you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 21. I'm sure you've read this passage before, and you will know exactly what I'm saying once I start reading. Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let me pray for us. Lord, we never want to hear those words. And so we pray that you would help us to see rightly the condition of our own souls this morning. And we pray that our confidence and our rest would be in Christ alone, not in anything we do, anything in us, but in Christ and his sufficient work, his life, his death, his resurrection. So would you show us again our Savior, root us again, found us again, Plant us again upon the rock, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we feel the weight of this passage bear down, bear down on us, uh, remind us again of our sufficient Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this passage would convict where it needs to convict, where it would comfort, where it needs to comfort, where it would uh, bring encouragement where there is encouragement needed. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a, a, a Welsh preacher in the 20th century, when, when he came to this text, he said, these surely are in many ways the most solemn and solemnizing words ever uttered in this world, not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. In other words, he believed that these are the most serious and weighty words ever spoken by Jesus or by any person for that matter. The famous American theoretical physicist Richard Feynman said, the first principle of scientific thinking is not to fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. Perhaps Martin Lloyd-Jones believed these words to be amongst the most significant words that Jesus spoke because he knew the same thing that Feynman knew, that, that we are really good at lying to ourselves. That we are really good at lying to ourselves. The scriptures are filled with warnings against self-deception. Jeremiah 17.9 warns us that our hearts are deceitful 
above all things. Above all things, the heart, the human heart, is deceitful. Now, it's one thing to, to lie to yourself about your athletic ability or to lie to yourself about your cooking skills or your driving record. All of these things can have destructive results in their own way. But it's something infinitely more dangerous to be self-deceived about the condition of your own soul. As Jesus continues to bring his sermon to a close, he holds up the mirror so that we can examine ourselves in light of his teaching. And and not so that we would be filled, not so that his people would be uh, filled with fear or or doubt or insecurity, uh, but as Spurgeon would say, so that the rough wind of self-examination would drive those things out. Too often we are like children who scrape their knee and refuse to look. Where are my kids at? Do you guys ever scrape your knee? Because my kids do this all the time. When they scrape their knee and they're like, don't look at it. I don't want to look. Don't look at it. And we're like, we're like those kids sometimes. We, we think if we can uh, pretend the wound isn't there, that somehow it will make it not there. But the reality is that unless we are willing to examine ourselves, we cannot be treated. And so we must ask ourselves if we are truly inside or outside the kingdom of God. We must take inventory of our own souls. So friend, how is your soul? Just as we saw last week that there are false prophets So Jesus tells us there are false disciples. Jesus warns us here that there is a way we can believe ourselves to be on our way to receiving eternal entrance into the kingdom. But in the end, we have deceived ourselves and we will be eternally turned away. Brothers and sisters, it's a hard passage to read and to consider. And frankly, it's a hard passage to preach. But I want you to know that we are committed as elders in this church, we are committed to making sure that in as much as it's up to us, we want every member of this church to be confident of their position and station before God. That they would know their standing before God without self-deception. And that means that we need to humbly sit under Jesus' words no matter how uncomfortable they may be. And and even as I say that, I I want you to remember that that Jesus doesn't give us these kinds of uncomfortable words so that we will be filled with doubt and fear. He gives us these, these words that are in many ways jarring so that those fears might be driven out and so that we might be driven further in to the grace that's found in knowing and being known by him. The self-deception is Jesus' concern. So let's look at it together. We're going to look at the peril of self-deception, the heart of self-deception, and the cure for self-deception. The peril, the heart, and the cure. Okay? You with me? All right. The peril. Let's look at the peril. Jesus comes to the danger of self-deception 
And his description of it is terrifying. It's terrifying first because it's an invisible danger. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are people who say with their mouth the right things. They say the right things. In calling Jesus Lord, they are confessing the truth about who Jesus is. They would affirm our statement of faith. They might even be able to teach through it. They are orthodox in their understanding. But not only that, in the next verses, they are those who have performed many mighty works in his name. They are people who have accomplished impressive feats of spiritual work in the name of Jesus. And yet invisible to others and invisible even to themselves is the reality that theirs is a false faith. They may have an intellectual grasp on who Jesus is, and they may even have a kind of spiritual charisma, but the truth of the gospel has never really penetrated their hearts. They are deceived. You know, the worst kind of danger is the kind that you can't see. You know, you're like driving down the road, and up ahead, unbeknownst to you, is a an invisible patch of black ice that's going to send you careening into a ditch. This kind of self-deception is a kind of black ice in your heart. So how is your soul? The peril of self-deception is also so terrifying because its outcome is unexpected. And the picture Jesus paints of these people, when finally they are standing before the Lord, they are caught off guard. They are surprised in the worst way possible. Even though in truth they have lived as enemies of God, in their minds, in their own hearts, in their own experience, they really believe They have every reason to expect a warm welcome from Jesus. They are spiritually blind to the condition of their own souls. And so when they are refused, Jesus says they will answer, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform many mighty works in your name? It's a picture of utter confusion. You know, uh, we're on the other side of tax season. Maybe some of you got a good surprise. Some of you found out uh, that maybe you're getting some money back, maybe more than you expected. And then maybe there are some others here that um, you broke even or you kind of knew ahead of time what you were going to have to pay. But then there's that third dreaded category where you, you get uh, a terrible surprise. And that surprises you owe way more money than you thought you did. These people who are spiritually blind have been living thinking that they're getting money back. But when the tax man comes, they find out they owe more than they could ever pay in a billion lifetimes. It's a surprise of the worst kind. And they wonder, how could this have happened? Like, I I know it's hard. And I know we, we, like every ounce of our body wants to resist this, 
but try and imagine being in their scenario on that day. What, how, did, how could this have happened? What, what did I miss? And, and notice that Jesus doesn't really answer their question. He just says, I don't know you, and sends them away. And they are sent away into bewilderment, into an eternity of unanswered confusion and dismay. This is the peril and the end of self-deception. How is your soul? He goes on to say that the the peril and the eventual end of self-deception will be final. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. That language of on that day is a reference to the day of judgment, the consummation of all human history, the final day when everything is laid bare before the judgment seat of Christ. And those who have deceived themselves will stand before Jesus. He will render his judgment and they will receive the just penalty for their sin and deceit. And on that day, there will be no do-overs, no second chances, no appeals, you know, whenever I think about the, the finality of God's judgment, which we probably should think about more often than we do, but it's hard to think about. Whenever, we think about the, whenever I think about the finality of God's judgment, I always think about that picture in Dante's Inferno. You know that poem? Where the gates of hell are pictured as an arch, and above the arch reads, Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Those who pass through that gate, there is no hope. There is, it's final. The most frightening thing about that final day is that it is a final day. God's judgment will stand forever. And there will be no hope of any reversals. Jesus will hand down his irrevocable judgment and it will stand for all eternity. And for those who have deceived themselves into thinking that they are living for God when in actuality they are living for themselves, there will be no mercy. Ever. It's why Isaiah writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near, because a day is coming when that time will come to an end. Friends, how is your soul? Having handed down his final judgment, the self-deceived will be confronted with the eternal peril of their way of life. Jesus says on that day, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To come before the one who is the source and substance of everything your heart has ever wanted and longed for and to hear him say, get away from me, I don't know you. You've all experienced at some point in your lives the sting of rejection. And if you haven't, you will. You're not hired for a job that you applied for or uh, kids. You're not picked for a team or maybe you're picked last for a team. Or maybe someone you really like, someone you really care about can't seem to make time for you. But the sting of that rejection is just a grain of sand 
in a desert compared to the feeling of being eternally rejected by the Son of God. Those who have deceived themselves will be sent by Christ into the everlasting experience of his rejection and disdain because of their sin with no hope of escape or redemption. Do you see what Martin Lloyd-Jones was saying about the serious and the weight of these words? How is your soul? But now here is perhaps the most sobering part of all of this. Jesus says the number of those who experience this soul peril will be vast. He says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And that word there for many is literally a multitude. A multitude. On that day, there will be a vast multitude who are eagerly expecting entrance into the kingdom, but will find their expectations dashed and their worst fears realized. This isn't just some small danger that a few people will be overtaken by. Look, lots of people will fall into this category, and it should break our hearts. should fill us with energy and motivation to make sure the people in our lives that we come in contact with know the condition of their souls before God. Again, in as much as it's up to us. So friend, I ask again, how is it with your soul? This is the the peril of self-deception, the danger of it. Now I'm guessing that some of you are Asking yourself something like, well, well, how can I know? Like, I don't want to be duped into thinking that I'm good with God when I'm really not. How do I escape? How do I avoid the danger and peril of being self-deceived? Well, Jesus doesn't just move on and leave us groping in the dark. He doesn't just leave us to try and figure out some nameless and shapeless danger that might bring about our eternal destruction. He tells us precisely what is at the heart of this kind of self-deception. You've seen the peril of self-deception. I want you to see the heart of it. What's at the core? What's at the center? What's at the heart of this kind of self-deception? And really what it boils down to is believing that you can work your way into God's good graces, that you can work your way into God's acceptance. That, that is a way of life that says, I am right with God because of what I do, or because of something in me. Look again at the text, verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Here Jesus says, it's not the one who just makes a profession of faith, but it's the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Now, at first blush, it might sound to you like Jesus is saying, it doesn't really matter what you are confessing. It doesn't really matter what your profession of faith is. It's, it's what you do for God that will get you in. It's, it's doing the will of the Father. But we have to ask the question, what is the will of the Father? 
And you can see how the self-deceived in this passage answer that question. Their answer is, well, we've done the will of the Father. Look at the good prophesying we've done. Look at the good casting out demons that we've done. Look at the many mighty works that we've done in your name. And what we find as we keep reading is that mighty works are not necessarily evidence of knowing God. And there is a big difference between doing works in Jesus' name and doing works for Jesus' name. I'm sure if you just take a moment, you can think of uh, a number of examples of people who seem to be doing things in the name of Jesus, but they're not doing those things for the glory of God. They're doing those things for the glory of self. They're doing those things to build their own kingdom, to make a name for themselves, to build their own platform and uh, secure their own benefit. And th- th- this passage is kind of like that little thought experiment we do sometimes when we're trying to, to preach the gospel to someone. We might say like, hey, suppose you get uh, to the gates of heaven and God were to ask you, you know, why should I let you in? What would you say? And Jesus pictures that same scenario and he says, those who are self-deceived are going to arrive at those gates and say, look at all the things that, 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 that we've done in your name. We, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did mighty works. Let me ask you, this person here in this text, what is their confidence? What are, they, what are they relying on? Yeah, they're relying on themselves. They're relying on their own works. They're relying on the things that they have done. Their confidence before God is their own achievements. Brothers and sisters, if there is anything I want you to know, it's this. There is only one sufficient ground for sinners like you and me to receive entrance into the kingdom of God, and it is the finished work of Christ. One well-known pastor put it this way. He said, our confidence before God must never be in the first person, must always be in the third person. If you find yourself questioning your status before God, am I right with God? And you answer to yourself, But I, but I go to church, but I read my Bible, but I spend time in prayer, but I give money to the poor, but I post religious memes on Facebook, but I was baptized, but I said the sinner's prayer, but I, but I. No, that is not the gospel. This is why you are plagued with doubt and fear. Because when you look for spiritual security and peace, you look inward. But your salvation did not come from inside of you. It came from the outside when God determined to set his love upon you in Christ Jesus. The gospel is that we are right with God and we are children because he, third person, because he, because Christ, because he came into the world, because he put on flesh. Because he lived a life of perfect righteousness. Because he went to the cross. Because he bore God's wrath in my place. Because he rose from the dead. Because he's victorious over sin and death. Because he is seated at the right hand of God. Because he is ever living to intercede for his people. He is our confidence. He is our security. He is our rest. 
We have confidence before God, not because of anything we do, but because Christ is sufficient, because his work is finished, because he is powerful to save. So where is your confidence this morning? See, at the heart of this kind of self-deception that Jesus is talking about is the belief that I can be right with God based on what I do. And let me show you something real quick about the relationship between a works-based righteousness and this kind of self-deception. When you live like your right standing with God is based on what you do, it is impossible for you to ever really honestly examine yourself. It's impossible. Any flaw you uncover screams at you that you are not worthy, and so you become an expert at minimizing your own flaws and your own failures and your own sins. You become an expert at downplaying your weaknesses. You get defensive if anyone ever calls you out on sin in your life. When you fail, you blame shift. You try to make other people or your circumstances the reason for your behavior. You make yourself the victim in situations. You are also critical of others because you need to know that you are doing better than them. You demand that people recognize you and you get really angry when they don't recognize you. All of these things have at their root a righteousness that's built on self and not on Christ. And when you live this way, it's impossible for you to really be honest about your own sins and flaws and failures. Any, listen, any chink in the armor of your righteousness is evidence that condemns you and you can't bear it. So you avoid it, you sweep it under the rug, you dismiss it, you discredit it, you excuse it. But think with me for a moment. What happens in a heart? What happens in a life when your identity and your certainty that God accepts you is not in you at all? What happens when your righteousness is founded on the objective reality of Christ's finished work? You, you, you contribute nothing to it, just the objective reality of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. What happens when that righteousness that comes from outside of you becomes your security that God accepts you and approves of you and counts you as one of his own children. Then you are free. Then you are free to be honest about yourself. You are free to examine yourself. You're free to stop lying to yourself. Why? Because you know that whatever sins are uncovered, whatever dirt rises to the surface None of it threatens your standing with God. He has known you completely all the way down to the bottom. But while you were enemies, Christ died. You were not some shiny little object that God said, ooh, I have to have that one. He knew your dirt. He knew your sin. He knew your flaws. He knew your weaknesses. And still he loved you and sent his son into the world. And when you know that, it sets you free then to be honest about yourself, to examine yourself, to allow others to examine you, to allow others to, to, to point out flaws and sins. Brothers and sisters, you will never be more justified in God's sight 
than you are right now in Jesus Christ. It's not like you're going to get to heaven and then you get to like level two justification. You are never more justified. If you are in Christ this morning, you are never more justified in God's sight than you are right now in this morning. And that should give you an incredible amount of comfort and security to know that you can just be honest. You can just, you can just lay your sin out there. I'm not saying it's not painful. I'm not saying it's not hard. I'm not saying it's not difficult. But because you have security and rest in him, you can be honest. You see? Look how Paul ties these two things together in Titus 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. If you have the ESV, it's, it's translated led astray. A better translation would actually be deceived. You're foolish, disobedient, deceived, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. What is the thing that we need in order to overcome our deception, our own self-deception, our own uh, slavery to, to passions and pleasures and, and to spend our lives hating ourselves and hating one another? It is the goodness of God in Christ. It is the loving kindness of God our Savior who supplies to us a righteousness not of works done by us, but according to his own mercy. So, so what does Jesus mean when he says it's those who do the will of the Father? Right? He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter, but those who do the will of my Father. Well, it's, it's what we saw. It's what we've been seeing really throughout the entirety of Jesus' sermon on the mount. That those who receive entrance are those who really are living kingdom lives. They really are doing the will of the Father, but that is not the basis or the ground for their acceptance before God. It is the incontrovertible evidence that they have come into the kingdom of God by his grace through faith. You understand what I'm saying? Their lives in the kingdom, which really do please the Lord, which really are Lives, not perfect, but really are lives in which they can say we are doing the will of the Father. That is not the basis for their entrance into the kingdom. It is the evidence that they have come into the kingdom by God's grace through faith. So what we saw last week. What happens when the tree is made good by union with Christ? What happens? The good tree does what? It bears good fruit. What happens when the roots are made good because God, by his spirit, breathes on a person new life? They bear good fruit. The fruit that is produced is necessarily good. And so Jesus can say, it's the one who does the will of my father that will receive entrance. Because all who have come into the kingdom by faith in the son as their sole confidence before God will indeed bear good kingdom fruit. The heart of self-deception is getting this backwards. It's when we begin to believe that it's our doing that warrants God's acceptance. Now, now we've already begun to hint at it, but, but you've seen the peril of it, the peril of self-deception. You've seen the heart of self-deception. I want you to see here the cure, the cure for self-deception. What is it? It's knowing Christ and being known by him. Look at verse 23. 
Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus' words here are so clarifying. These people are self-deceived because they have believed that it's their works that win them entrance. But Jesus' declaration to them is, I never knew you. At the bottom, listen, at the bottom of Christ's rejection of them is not that their works are inferior or incomplete or inadequate. That's, of course, true. But at the bottom of Jesus' rejection is that they never knew him and he never knew them. Now, of course, we need to say that this in no way threatens the fact that Jesus is all-knowing. Right? This is the, 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 Jesus is not saying that he doesn't, he's not aware of this person's existence. Right? Of course, you can see these people obviously know who Jesus is, and he, of course, knows who they are. But the word here for know is not just a bare intellectual assent or a bare intellectual grasp. It's the Greek word that, that uh, denotes experiential knowledge. It denotes uh, relationship. So, in effect, what Jesus is saying is, I didn't know you in relationship. We were never friends. You were never a part of my family. It would be like showing up at some like closed family dinner party, and you, and you walk up, and you're stopped because your name is not on the list, and the host comes out and says, no, you're not a part of our family. This is, this, this is not for you. And so here's the question. How can we be cured of our self-deception and finally have real assurance on that day that we will be welcomed in with open arms? You know, this is not my notes, but I I used to teach in a Catholic school. I taught in a Catholic school for for nine years. And whenever I'd have these conversations, I always got, and I bet, I'm willing to bet if any of you have a Catholic background, you you, you know this exact response. If I would say to uh, someone uh, who, you know, real real Catholic and say, um, Hey, do you know uh, that one day, you know, that you're, you're going to go in, that, that, you, that, the, you know, that God is going to receive you, that God is going to welcome you? And you know what they would always say? Is that anyone? I hope so. I hope. And not, the, and not the hope the way the Bible talks about hope. See, the way the Bible talks about hope is a certain rock-solid reality in the future. It's something you can take to the bank. It's certainty. It's future certainty. The way they use it is like, I don't know. I'm hoping it goes one direction, but maybe it won't. I hope so. It's like, you know, I hope I get a bicycle for Christmas. I hope so. That is not the Christianity of the Bible. That is not the gospel. Jesus comes into the world so that we might know with assurance, with certainty, what we will hear on that day. So how do we come to have and possess that assurance? How are we freed from self-deception and filled with a sense of certainty and assurance that one day we will be welcomed in? The answer of this text boils down to the supremely important question. Do you know Christ? And maybe more importantly, does he know you? This, brothers and sisters, is the great purpose of our lives. It's, this, it's, it's everything. To know All of life boils down to this question. Do you know Christ, uh, Jeremiah 9, 
Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. He says, you want to boast in something? Boast in knowing me. That's what life is all about, knowing Christ and being known by him. So what, what, what is it to know Jesus? Well, the first thing we have to say is that Jesus is a person. And knowing a person is more complex than knowing an inanimate object or knowing uh, like a, a, a subject of study. You know, I, I could um, examine a car and drive it and gain an experiential knowledge of that vehicle. Or I could devote myself to the study of theoretical physics and come to know what that's all about. That's a lie. It doesn't matter how much I study. I'm never going to know that stuff. But, but knowing a person is different. Knowing a person is different, right? Because my knowledge of a person is conditioned really on how much they want me to know about them. I might really want to know something. I might really want to know about a person, but unless they're willing to open themselves up, unless they're willing to make themselves known to me, my ability to know about them is going to be pretty limited. And here's what I mean. If, if, if you are going to know Jesus, you are going to have to know him by grace. Before you can ever come to know him, he must make himself known. He must open himself up to you so that you can know him. He must come to you and become vulnerable and transparent and exposed so that you can know him. And don't you see that is exactly what he's done. From all eternity, God has purposed to send his son into the world to take on flesh, to become weak and vulnerable and exposed. Why? So that you could know him. He takes to himself fingers and toes and eyes and ears and a voice and a body and a mortal life so that you could know him. All throughout his earthly life, he is making himself known. And now as he comes to his final hour, he puts all of himself on display. This is what we read this a little bit earlier. Jeremy read it to us. Right? When Jesus is John 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, he, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all that you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You, you know, when, when the gospel of John is talking about the hour, Jesus' hour, It's always talking about his crucifixion. And this is the whole point. Everything has come to this hour that Christ would be lifted up on the cross. And right after that, right after he talks about his hour, Jesus says, this is eternal life. That they would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What do you think Jesus is saying? Saying, if you want to know me, if you want to know who I am, come to the cross. Come to the cross and see who I am. See all of who I am put on display. It's at the cross where Christ makes himself fully known. 
and therefore where we come to know him. And, and think about what's happening on the cross that absolutely keeps you from self-deception. See, at the cross, you learn two things simultaneously. At the cross, you learn two things simultaneously. And you can't learn them individually. You, can't, you have to learn them in harmony with one another. The first thing is that you learn you have been more corrupted by sin than you could ever possibly have imagined. Because at the cross, you see what the cost is of your sin. Nothing but the crucifixion of the very Son of God will suffice to pay for your sin. You see how heinous, how gross, how disgusting, how evil your sin really is. Your whole life from the top of your head down to the bottom of your feet is sin. Your will is corrupted by sin. Your desires, your motivations, your heart, your loves, your thoughts, your actions, your words, your emotions, all corrupted by sin. You learn at the cross the fullness of your sin. And yet, it's at the cross at the very same time at the very same time, you are learning that you are more corrupted by sin than you could ever possibly, possibly have imagined. At the same time, you are learning the immensity and the abundance and the lavishness of God's love for you in Christ. It's the place where you learn that when you had not taken one single step towards God, he was running towards you to make you his own in Jesus. It's at the cross that you learn that there is nothing that God would not do to make himself known to his people. There at the cross you learn that in Christ God knew you before even the first star ever shined a ray of light. Before ever a world was created, he set his love upon you. And having loved you in Christ, he now welcomes you and affirms you and accepts you and delights in you, not because of anything you've done, but because of Christ, because of his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection. It's at the cross that I both learn the truth about myself and am affirmed and assured of God's love for me. Look at, we read this passage earlier, the the one from Jeremiah 31. God comes, this is a promise, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one say to his neighbor uh, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for. Now here's the ground, listen. What is the ground for God being able to make this promise that each of us will know him? What is the ground? For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. He comes into the world so that you might know him. And you see what happens when you realize that you are both fully known and fully loved by God in Christ. It's then and only then that self-deception melts away. Then you are set free from lying to yourself. Set free from pretending and excusing your sin. Then you are filled with assurance and certainty that God loves you and approves of you. Not because of anything in you, but because by faith you see Christ at the cross and the empty tomb making himself known to you and accomplishing your salvation. And then 
And only then you have come to know him and be known by him. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I was going to try and summarize this little section in J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. If you haven't read this book, I, I recommend it highly to you. I was going to try and summarize this section, but then I just gave up and I said, I'll just read it. Uh, listen, listen to uh, J.I. Packer here as I come to a close. Uh, he says this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I am graven on the palms of his hands. I am never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. And there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me. And no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort the sort of comfort that energizes it, be it said, not enervates or drains, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Do you understand what he's saying there? Because his knowledge of you was prior, because he knows everything about you and sent his son into the world, there's nothing you can do or say, there's nothing that God will ever find out about you that will ever disillusion him or keep him from continuing to move, forward, move towards you in love to bless you. And then he says this, There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees all the twisted things about me that my fellow humans do not see, and that he sees more corruption in me, that which I see in myself. There is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason he wants me as his friend and desires to be my friend and has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. These verses are without question among the most serious and weighty words Jesus ever spoke. And yet for those who are in Christ, who have come to know him in his death and resurrection, they are free from all fear and all doubt and all insecurity and are assured of his love. They know because of Christ, not because of anything in them, they know because of Christ that on that day what they will hear is not, depart from me, I never knew you. And what they will hear is, welcome son, welcome daughter, the feast is ready, the wine is poured, come in and find eternal joy and rest for your soul. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, what can we say but thank you? Thank you that you give us a certainty, a sure hope that when that day comes, when we stand before you, we will not be sent away. That because of Christ and Christ alone, we will be welcomed in. Lord, I pray that our confidence, that our assurance, that our security would be in Christ, in his finished work. And that out of that assurance and out of that security, we would live our lives, not deceiving ourselves, but doing your will, honest about our sins, honest about our failures, confessing sins to one another, growing in our faith, and all the while resting in Christ's sufficiency. Lord, by your spirit, make it so. And bless us now as we come to your table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.